0: Welcome to The Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and this podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. And joining me today is the angry therapist, John Kim. He is the author and licensed therapist who pioneered the online life coaching movement eight years ago after going through a divorce and a rebirth. He started a blog called The Angry Therapist and quickly built a devoted following of fans who loved the frank and authentic insights that he freely shared on social media. He pulled the curtain back and showed himself by practicing transparency and sharing his story, something therapists are definitely not taught to do. He became known as an unconventional therapist who worked out of the box by seeing clients at coffee shops, on hikes, and at the gym. He quickly built a coaching team of his own and launched a sister company called JRNI, creating a new way to help people help people and change the way we change. So today we're going to dive into a bunch of different topics. John's going to talk about his uh, relationship to divorce and how uh, that process changed who he was, but we're also going to talk about uh, one of his... Uh, latest books called "I Used to Be a Miserable Fuck" An "Every Man's Guide to a Meaningful Life." Uh, now it's a it's a very well written book. He's he's quite funny. Uh, you know he's not as angry uh, on this on this interview as you might think, <laughs> based on based on the title. But we did talk a lot about social conditioning around anger and how uh, some of the patterns that we experience when we grow up. Really shape and and develop us as men to being prone to uh, anger and aggression. And how these things can shut us off from a much deeper, more meaningful life. And one of the things that we talk about is our not only our relationship to anger, but the pieces that are underneath that. Because in a large part, anger is a secondary emotion. Uh, and and it's usually not the the emotion that comes first. Usually some other emotion, shame, sadness, guilt, uh, whatever that might be, has has shown up because of a certain situation in our life. and anger is our response uh, to that emotion as a from a protection mechanism. So we talk quite a bit about that. Uh, John shares his personal journey, um, you know to be not only becoming a therapist, but breaking out of the box and the, the sort of like nonconformity and how challenging it uh, it is to be a therapist because therapists have a lot of rules and regulations that they have to abide by. And he shares his personal journey of uh, shifting away from that and why in some cases, coaching can be much more practical, <clears throat> much more impactful uh, and much more meaningful for people because it breaks down the walls uh, and can sort of humanize the person that you're working with. So. We dive into a whole bunch of different topics, great conversation. Uh, John is very engaging, and uh, I hope that you enjoy this. Before I bring him on, though, just a quick reminder to all the men, uh, head on over to mantalks.com and check out the Alliance. We have a few spots open uh, for you to join that community. We have calls every single week, and uh, myself and Trevor Bohm lead that, and it's basically like a group coaching program. We support you and the other men that are in this group uh, with your health, with your mindset, with your relationship, with leveling up uh, sexually and monetarily, financially, emotionally, mentally. And uh, they are incredible calls. There's guys from around the world that are that are a part of that group. And there are some really, really phenomenal conversations, but some great accountability uh, lessons and action that gets put into place. So head on over, check that out. Uh, men's weekends are, I think sold out. I think we might have one spot left uh, in New York. So if you're interested in that, definitely head on over to mantox.com and sign up today. Otherwise is going to be sold out soon. Uh, and, and just as a, a last shout out, thank you so much. In the last month we had the most downloads of all time. And that is all thanks to you sharing the podcast Uh, out through your communities and engaging people in this conversation. So thank you so much for not only listening to this podcast, but being a part of its growth and expansion. I appreciate you so much. And I'm excited to say that in the coming months, I have a book coming out and I have been working hard behind the scenes working on this book. And it is all about the shadow of men. It is all about the shadow of our psyche and how that shadow uh, sabotages our life, our relationship, our sex life, how it sabotages the the way that we uh, build our businesses, uh, how the inner critic plays into that, and how our greatest growth, our absolute greatest growth comes, comes through being able to start to face, work with, understand, and integrate the shadow because when we face our darkness, we can step more fully into the light. So if you're interested in that, make sure that you are on the email list or following me on social media because that is going to be coming out soon so thank you so much and uh, without any further delay please welcome the angry therapist John Kim thank you for having me yeah this is great you know like I, I uh, I've seen your stuff floating around the angry therapist and I, I kind of love the idea because you're sort of breaking the mold of what it means to be a therapist because usually, like my wife is a marriage and family therapist and I've always heard about the sort of code of conduct and like how therapists need to operate within this very sort of restricted confine and I love the concept and so I'm excited to dive very deep in some of these topics today that we're going to we're, we're jam about. But first, I got to ask the big question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
1: Yeah, um man I have so many defining moments. I think for me they're not like um these big moments where in that moment you realize that uh, something has shifted. It's always me looking back and realizing how a moment that was maybe uh, under like sub like subtle or what you know not 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 that big actually be, was a huge moment for me. And so um if I had to pick one, I'm just thinking about this idea of uh being a therapist and what that looks like. Um, it was my drive home from taking the big exam. Uh, so, as a as a, a therapist to become licensed, you have to take this. It's like the bar, right? Uh, but for therapists, I knew I didn't pass, and I knew that uh, I'm not a good test taker. I'm not academic. Um, you know, in, in in college and high school, I was just a C student, always ditching school and all that. And so. Um, I remember taking the exam and it was like, you know, four hour exam, uh, just enough time to just like pee and come back. And I was thinking as I was finishing, like, okay, I I didn't pass this. What am I going to do? How am I going to, you know, uh, what's my next step? All of that. And I remember hitting the, um, the, uh, the finish thing and it tells you instantly and it said I passed. And uh, I remember driving home with tears in my eyes thinking like, that was the first domino it's now um some it's bigger than me it was almost a nod from the universe saying that this is now your path and you are meant to go uh help people and that was the beginning of everything
0: nice man nice what was the what was the relief there cuz i imagine that that was like a huge uh sort of like this huge moment and, and if it was a sign what was it a sign of
1: yeah, it was almost a spiritual experience because I don't even remember taking the exam. I couldn't even tell you one question. It was like, I don't know if I was in flow or if I was like, if something greater was working through me, but it was one of those moments where I feel like it was a miracle. Like I, I really, um, I went into it a hundred percent thinking that there's no way I'm going to pass this test and I passed and I was like, wow, that means something.
0: Yeah. And yeah. so as you started to uh, do the work that you're doing today, what led you to this concept of the angry therapist?
1: It started with a divorce and starting my life over um, and not having you know, uh, any money, any friends. Uh, I basically didn't have a life. So uh, going from being a screenwriter to a therapist or so starting, starting a new career and at the time, Tumblr was kind of big, and I just started a little blog. And I called it The Angry Therapist. I thought it was kind of funny that a therapist was angry. I was also a very angry, unhappy person. And I pulled the curtain back, and I started to practice transparency. And I, I was like, look, I'm a therapist in training. I'm going through a divorce. I'm broken. I'm hurting. You know, How can I help you? And so that kind of set the tone. My very first post was called My Fucking Feelings. And what I didn't know that I was doing was I was humanizing myself, and so um, I kind of followed that, and then, you know, my little blog, which I didn't think anyone would read, uh, ended up turning into emails, which turned into sessions, and, um, you know, books, and 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 all of that stuff I'm doing now.
0: Nice, nice, and, you know, I think one of the interesting things that you really have done well is just what you said, right, humanizing the, the therapist, and I, it's interesting, because I think, you know, this is, um, Probably like a hot topic of debate within within the therapeutic community, yeah. as to you know, especially with the rise of social media. Like I, you know, Vienna, um, you know, she runs at Mindful MFT on Instagram. She's got like three hundred thousand followers, and it's been interesting to see her really just start to do things that I wouldn't perceive to be any sort of threat or problem at all. To this sort of therapeutic rules. Like she didn't have her face anywhere on Instagram for a long time. She didn't really like share personal stuff for a long time. And there was sort of like that very uh, sort of rigid line yeah. between the therapist and the client. And, you know, it took a lot of coaxing to just be like, I think you should put your face on Instagram and you should make videos. And and so that's kind of unfolded, but maybe give the listener some context to, what the sort of unspoken rules are or the spoken rules are for most therapists and and psychotherapists.
1: Yeah, um I didn't have this master plan to uh humanize a the therapist or it wasn't some kind of like marketing campaign. For me it was very natural in that when I um got my license and became a therapist, I hit a fork in the road where I was like, okay, do I um, work under the rules of, of a therapist. And I didn't agree with a lot of them. For example, you know, the internet, um, started to explode and the uh, broadband came out. And so like the invention of the web webcam, and I was like, well, now I could see people all over the world, but if you're a licensed therapist, you're only supposed to see people within your state. So I did, I was so, I was like, why can't we use technology to reach people? And I remember running my first group online connecting about six strangers um, using Google Hangouts when that first came out. And I remember closing my little MacBook after about an hour group and thinking like I had chills and I was like, this is how I want to work. And so I called myself a life coach because as a life coach, um, you know, there's no board. Uh, and then I started to work in ways that were uh, in the therapy world would be uh, kind of frowned upon or, or or not not, you know, conventional. And so I never had an office. I met people in coffee shops. I thought if we're gonna talk about life, let's do life while we're talking. So I went on hikes with them. I even brought them into the, uh, the CrossFit box and worked out with them and stuff. Um, I didn't know, again, what I was doing. This was like 10 years ago. Uh, life coaching you know, was, was in its infancy. But I was, I was working in a way that I felt was honest to me. And so what I was doing is I was doing what people are doing now, which is, Coming with you instead of at you, and they're 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 basically life coaching people. Yeah, and so my blog um, was kind of the 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 beginning of for me changing that temperature of um, what a therapist looks like, and a therapist can actually show himself,
0: and that's okay, you know.
1: Yeah, which which we're taught not to do in therapy school.
0: Yeah, and can you give the listeners some context as to why? why those restrictions are there. Cause I think for a lot of people are like, well, well, why not? You know, I, I know a lot of people right. that are like, I wish I knew my therapist. more. I miss, I knew like the person yeah. that I go and work with more or like at a deeper level. So can you just give some context to that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I understand why. And it's valid, meaning, um, you know, you're supposed to be neutral. You're supposed to create a safe space where in that therapy room, um, to not make it about you you know, and even though I show myself when I'm doing sessions, when I'm working with clients, I don't, you know, switch the conversation, make it about, make it about my life. So I mean, there definitely is that responsibility and balance, but I think the, um, uh, the, the thing that, that kind of backfires within the clinical world is that you become a cardboard cutout. So you become more of like a, uh, you know, a physician, a doctor, uh, whatever it is, and, uh, an expert. And it, 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 to me, uh, the, what the world wants now, especially the millennials, is they're more interested in who you are instead of the, the letters after your name. So, I, I just think it's an old model. You know, I think before the internet, that was kind of the standard. You go see a therapist in a private room, and you don't know anything about your therapist, and so the therapist becomes very neutral and very kind of like, almost like you know, like a doctor would be. Now, I think the world is changing, and I think now. It's okay uh, whether you're a doctor, a therapist, dentist. It doesn't matter whatever expert you are. It's okay to actually be you on purpose. You know, I think that's where the the power is, and social media I think is a huge contributor to that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like more and more people are wanting some form of transparency with the people that they're going to work with, and. You know, I, I think that it, it depends on it. I guess it depends on what it is, right? I, I would imagine that, you know, if someone's working in a very intense environment where, whether they are working with certain forms of psychosis and, you know, I would imagine that certain psychologists, like there still has to be that, that little bit of separation. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it depends on, uh, the occupation. Um, what that relationship is like. I mean, I don't know if with, you know, your brain surgeon, if you want to know a lot about him, uh, maybe. <laughs> but I think with your therapist, because we're, we're you know, the thing about like um, therapy and life coaching and it kind of overlaps, it's the relationship itself is therapeutic, right? So it's not just about the content or what we're talking about, but it's actually the relationship you, you have with your therapist or a life coach that can, can be healing you know and so my argument is uh, if that's the case then that relationship should be authentic and if that relationship is uh, authentic then you have to show yourself in a certain way you know if you if you just present yourself in a way that's just an expert how authentic is that relationship you know That being said, you're not going to like go and and have dinner with your therapist and you know, (laughs) you have to, you have to to keep it professional. Um, But that your definition of, or our definition of professional, I think is um, it's different now today than it was before, you
0: know? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because even, you know, a hundred years ago, maybe less than that now, 80 years ago, somebody like Carl Jung was actually quite transparent about his life and his beliefs Mm, and he actually used his sort of inner world and inner reflections as a means of teaching. And, you know, his whole even like his memoir Memories, Dreams and Reflections, which is sort of like the the biography about him or of him through him, was really about a step-by-step chronology of his entire life and his Mm. inner workings and how he viewed Certain psychological and and spiritual issues, uh, and I think that that is immensely it can be immensely profound because when people really understand the human psyche to that degree, but then we can see into some of the challenges that they face that they're going through, it humanizes our ability to see. Okay, I have less knowledge about this area of myself, this, this psychological or spiritual area of myself, but. I'm gaining an immense amount of clarity through this person's sharing. Yeah, and, you know, I think that that's why there is a relevance and a and a and a deep importance to people that are coaches, people that are therapists, to be able to share some of it. Maybe not like a tell-all <laughs> kind of thing, but yeah, you're
1: not you're not vomiting on your on your client. That's
0: not what you're right. Doing. Right. There's there's that earned vulnerability. There's the you know the, the perspective of like, but just humanizing. I think is very important, I think that 's why you know people like tony Robbins and and even shows like this and, and shows like the one that you have really allow the the viewer to sort of connect because there there isn 't this like huge separation of you know who I am as an individual is completely removed from the conversation
1: right i didn 't know that um, Carl Young uh, humanized himself that 's really interesting, so would you say he was kind of the first one to practice transparency and use his story to, with his clients to help help
0: them? I, I think so, i yeah. you know, from what I know, um, I, you know I don't, I, I'm not, de- definitely not sort of like, studied in all of the therapists of like the early 20th century, but from the ones that I have read, you know, yeah. Freud and, and him and um, Osler and some of the other guys, the majority of them didn't use personal experiences. Right, but and he did, huh? Yeah, especially Freud. Like, Freud didn't really talk about his life. Right, right. And and even in his writings, Freud didn't talk about, you know, he would share his personal perspective, but he would always talk about the client. He'd always talk about the, the person with the psychosis or the person with the problem or the challenge or the obstacle. Whereas Jung, he would refer to his clients, but he also op- was open about his personal journey mm-hmm. and how he came to some of these conclusions about the unconscious mind, the collective unconscious, the yep. personal unconscious, the shadow yep. through his own inner workings. And, and it was sort of this integral part of saying, I'm seeing myself as I do this work with others, but I, I'm also, I'm also seeing myself in others and they're seeing themselves in me. And that's what it allows me to do this sort of like depth of work.
1: Yeah. And I love I, that. I love that. He, um, worked in that way because I'm, 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 a big fan of him and also uh, Joseph Campbell and, and the, the, the hero's journey and all that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, let's, let's shift gears a little bit cause I feel like we could like psychologically nerd out for a while. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and our, and the listener's like, okay, you, you guys are really Jones in on this right. whole conversation. Right. Uh, but you know, I think I, I want to talk about, uh, a little bit about misery and I, you know, yes. I love, The concept of your book is called, or the title of your book is called, I Used to Be a Miserable Fuck, An Everyman's Guide to a Meaningful Life. And I love this because I don't think that we really talk about why people are so miserable, the impacts of that misery. Uh, So maybe just give me a little bit of like, tell me more about why you wrote this book in the first place and what
1: you Yes, for sure. Can I just mention one more thing about that whole therapy life coaching? Um, So, you know, to scratch my own itch and because I was frustrated with the clinical world, um, I called myself a coach and I also started an online academy and we've already graduated about 500 coaches. And I just wanted to say that if you're interested in helping other people, um, now's the time to do it. And there's so many ways that you can do it. That's honest to you. So that's all that I just want to inspire other people to help other people, Um, uh, because there's so many people that, that, that are scared to become, you know, relationship coaches or whatever, but they have that calling, but they don't want to go back to grad school. I want mm-hmm. them to know that there, there are so many options now, and it's a very exciting time for that.
0: So true. So yeah.
1: True. Um, so going back to, yeah, being miserable, uh, this, I, I'm very, um, I'm very familiar with this misery with my own story it uh i uh in my 20s and 30s i was um a miserable fuck you know like like my book says and i part of that was because i was chasing i was uh um i didn't allow myself to be happy until i had the things like uh you know the the I always I'm very specific because I grew up in L.A. But um, the the Range Rover Porsche combo in the horseshoe shaped driveway, um, you know the 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 deals, um, the house in the hills. Like I, I had this very <laughs> specific image of what success looked like, and because I didn't have those things, I I was just angry and miserable and just negative, and I, I I kind of like put myself on an island. I didn't invest in friendships. I wasn't mindful. I wasn't present. So I was married at the time and uh, she was doing really well. And I was the guy that was in coffee shops thinking of dialogue and act breaks, hoping to sell the, uh, the million dollar screenplay, you know, and I, I had some success, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't sustainable. It was very feast or famine. And I remember I was talking to my own therapist and from my own therapist journey, uh, that's when I decided that I wanted to be a therapist like him.
0: Hmm. Very cool. Very, very cool. And so it, what, was, what was the curiosity initially, like when you were having those therapy sessions? Was it the transformation and the, and the experience of growth? Like what, what actually propelled you towards it?
1: Yeah, it was that. It was um, um, also this desire to uh, um, move people. And if I couldn't do it with, uh, you know, um, if I couldn't move the masses, I'd, I'd like to do it one at a time. Um, and by by move just being a catalyst, you know, um, I was like many people, I was kind of the guy in my circle of friends growing up that people uh, came to advice for, and I, I enjoyed that. I loved psychology. I was also at a point in my life where um, I was a complete boy, and I was kind of um, on my journey of crossing that great divide to manhood, and you know, having problems in my marriage and finally looking at myself and my defects. So I think it was a combination of all that that really interested me. And then I was like, you know, I this, is, this feels um, meaningful to me. You know, instead of just
0: writing screenplays, I want to help people with my life. So in your opinion, having been someone that, (laughs) having been someone that was a miserable fuck, I just, it's kind of like a joke out of just saying that, but, but having been someone that had experienced this, this like misery that we're talking about, why do people, why do people sit in misery? Because it's, it seems like, and I think we all know people like this, that you can tell that they're miserable. They know that they're miserable, but they just seem hell bent on staying in that misery. Why do we love misery? Um, I think it's, uh, uh, I
1: think if to really simplify it, I think it's um, not having hope. So when you feel a sense of hopelessness, um, you just sink into your quicksand, you know, Um, and I don't know what's happening in in the person's life, but if you don't have a sense of hope, if you feel like this is as as good as it's going to get, if you believe that you can't have more or better or whatever, you're going to be miserable. You know, uh, for me, that's kind of what happened. And it wasn't until um, I was forced to, to build a new life that I started to uh, change my mindset and uh, inject hope into my life. And then once I felt a sense of hope, then came, you know, oh, what if and, and the power of curiosity, you know, what if I could build a meaningful life? What if I could actually help people in a way that's honest to me? Um, what if I could write again, not screenplays, but maybe books? So all of that stuff, you know, what if I could change my body, you know, all these things.
0: So it sounds like misery becomes more and more present when we are experiencing like the shame of not doing the things that we know we're capable of.
1: Yes. And I think also, you know, we all have false beliefs. We all have limited beliefs. So um, a lot of people create their own prison because they believe that they can't, you know, they're not good enough, not smart. enough. I mean, just going to the beginning of this conversation, when I um, took that exam, I didn't think that I passed because I didn't believe that I was smart enough to, mm-hmm. to be a therapist, you know, smart enough to pass pass that four-hour exam. Um, it wasn't until I actually passed that I had the experience and then something shifted in me where I went from um, hopelessness to now hope-filled.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I think with men specifically, it seems to be like a, a really huge challenge when... When men aren't pursuing the things that they want out of life, whether that's health, whether that's fitness, whether that's relationship or you know building an, a, an extraordinary career or business or, or life purpose, it seems like misery seems to build more and more and more. And so I know your yeah. book is sort of yeah. aimed at men, but I would love to hear from your perspective what are some of the things that that men do or don't do that, that lead to this sense of dissatisfaction, like deep dissatisfaction in their lives? Um, I, th- I would start with, so my book
1: is kind of, um, uh, 66 tips. So it's, it, it's kind of very kind of, uh, street level in a shot glass. And, and I think all of those tips, uh, can, can fall in there, uh, can, you know, uh, be the answer to your question. But if I was to pick a few, um, the big ones, I would say not looking inward. So, um, instead of taking ownership and, doing something, changing something, uh, blaming the world, right? Taking um, that whole victim mindset, uh, that definitely adds to misery. Reacting instead of re- responding, that's a big one. So I used to be a walking reaction. Um, I think a lot of men, uh, well, not men in general, people, men and women, um, because of uh, you know stuff they've been through, trauma, abuse, um, whatever, holding a lot of anger, resentment, um, and not even being aware of that, that um, everything that that they do. They're just, they just wake up and they're walking reactions. Mm. And so having the ability to respond instead of react, I think changes your state, you know? Um, and we on those, those people who, um, we just don't want to be around because they're explosive or toxic or reactive. And it's not that they're, they're bad people, but they haven't, uh, acquired the the tools to put that kind of emotional speed bump where they could then respond. And then when you start responding, you actually, you make different decisions. You, you take a different path, uh, you break that pattern and then your, your, your life can change just off that one thing.
0: Yeah. And can you, you know, I think reactivity is one of the most important pieces like within the, the work that we do at men's weekends. I always say like reactivity is the, the sort of finger pointing towards the shadow of our psyche, like the the part that's that's negatively uh sort of controlling us or acting causing us to act out or lash out or you know there's so much there sabotage in the inner critic but can you sort of unpack a why in your opinion reactivity is so important for men to start to be more self-aware of and B what feeds into our reactivity what actually causes our reactivity from like a ego level?
1: Yeah, I think um I think the greatest difference be- between uh, boy and man or adult and child is um that children react and men or and adults respond. Um I think we react uh because you know, I mean there's so many reasons why we react. It could be pain, it could be hurt, it could be fear, whatever. Um but at the end of the day, reactions um stunt our growth. It it stops us from expanding you know um when we're reacting we're, we're creating a ceiling and we're not uh when you're in reaction mode you're not actually looking at yourself or being curious about why you you do something or think a certain way you're just uh throwing peas at the wall <laughs> you know you're, you're being destructive and i think so many men um are like that uh and there's a you know a, a lot of reasons I, I think part of it is we live in a, a fatherless nation um, I worked in nonprofit and I realized that, uh, all the kids I was treating, they're all teenagers uh, struggling with addiction, uh, that, that the common thread was dad was not home either physically or emotionally. And, and of course, because of that, they were all very reactive, um, in their own way. And so I, I think sometimes we have to hit our bottom or something has to change. For me, it was a divorce where we can, um, decide to start responding instead of reacting. And I think it's a practice, you know, it's not a light switch. It's not something you do over the weekend because you you read a book. Um, It's like meditation. It's like being mindfulness or it's like changing your body. Um, It's something you have to thread into your life every day, you know, to exercise that muscle to respond instead of react.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a great explanation. I think, you know, the perspective that i've always had on reactivity is that our reactivity is coming from a place of patterns you know they're they're like they are psychological habits that have been created over the years of you know if if someone was rejected as a kid that built a pattern within them if someone was you know verbally put down as a kid that built a responsive pattern in them right so their father would you know uh sort of put them down emotionally or verbally and then they would retreat right or they would lash out and then later on in life when they find themselves you know married with two kids and their wife says something that they interpret as being a personal attack there's a very specific response that's already been pre-built to that based on past wounding and so how do guys you know, I know that's sort of self-awareness and, and really starting to see those patterns, but where do you recommend that men start in terms of this journey of becoming more self-aware to the patterns that are, that are embedded in their reactivity?
1: Um, get very curious about what's happening underneath this idea of looking inward. Why do you do what you do? Uh, why do you think what you think? Where are these things coming from, you know? Um, if you could connect dots if you could if you could you know um realize that your reaction stems from <clears throat> your upbringing or uh childhood or you know the 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 uh the times that you got your ass kicked by this person or whatever um if you could realize that your reaction is actually you protecting yourself, you know whatever it is when you start having those those revelations, I think at that point you could then have those like aha moments where you're like, oh, this is actually what's happening you know. And that's, I think, 50% of growth. And then the other half is then execution, you know, choosing something different. Okay, when I feel this coming up um, and I want to throw a chair, what's the response? I'm going to instead sit in that chair (laughs) and and maybe, um, you know, put my ego aside and try to understand someone instead of trying to be understood, you know, things like that. And then I think as we practice that and then we see the results, you know, and this is when it tips is when you see, oh. When I do this, I get a different result from that person. When I do this, um, I don't sink into my quicksand. When I do this, you know, things people gravitate toward me or or good or better things happen, then I think that is very convincing. It's like it's like working out and then you you see like one or two abs and you're like, Holy shit, this is working.
0: Yeah. You yeah. Know? I think that's I think that's great insight and and you know, I think the The next, the sort of next piece that I'm curious about is, uh, and sort of want to bring into the conversation for the listeners, is one of your chapters or one of your points is called "Don't Peer Over the Metaphorical Urinal." (laughs) Oh, yeah, the the uh, you talk about penis sizes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I kind of got a good chuckle out of, out of that in the, in the chapter. So can you, uh, unpack a little bit about the importance around that? Yes. Yes. So that was probably the most, um, terrifying part of my book to
1: write. Um, because, uh, I, I just disclosed my own story and, um, my, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but insecurities, right? One being, um, penis sizes. And it's like, um, did I say plural? Like I have many penises, just one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but growing up, so I grew up uh, in the '80s, and my parents were always at work, so I was exposed to um, pornography. I, you know, I, I was able to um, um, get get watch TV and watch uh, the Playboy Channel, like a lot of things that I shouldn't have been exposed to because there wasn't a lot of supervision. And so, um, and, and today it's crazy because the kids today, I mean to like actually look at porn you just all you have to do is just open up your phone um, oh man
0: i if i had a mobile device that i could look at porn at when i was 15 oh, i no. 1000 yeah. percent would have yeah. had an addiction an addictive problem
1: oh yeah I, yeah me too. i had <laughs> i had an,
0: i had a i had problems with with porn and i had fucking dial-up you know, like,
1: <laughs> right. Well, I, 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 and I, and I'm probably older than you. So I grew up. Uh, so when I was like 10 or 12 or 14 or where we you know that age when, when I was uh, curious about, about that, um, I had to know someone and we had to like, you know, it was a whole mission to get a magazine and then that magazine, you cut out the pictures and you, and then you're just looking at one image for months, you know? <laughs> so totally. Was, and then of course with the internet now it's everywhere, but, um, I think that the locker rooms, I think pornography, I think all of that, um, it distorts our, our definitions, uh, you know, it distorts, um, um, what we think is uh, like the normal size penis, uh, that's being very specific, but also like what sex looks like, what intimacy looks like, you know? And so there's a brainwashing. And so I think then we grow up, um, I know I did feeling insecure because I didn't have a baby arm in between my legs, you know? Mm. And, um, thinking that I was less than, or I wasn't a good lover because of that. And it wasn't until, I mean, it wasn't until I was like 30, I was in my thirties and I had, I was seeing, um, I I was one of my girlfriends and she was the first person that was like, I actually really like your size because (laughs) my ex-boyfriend, um, was this huge guy and she said she hated it. She said it was painful. And, it it just it didn't hit me until then that because I because I was like yeah but like in in pornography everyone is like huge and the women seem like they're loving it and she was like no I hated sex but with you um I actually really love it now and it, and it took me to hear that to to realize oh maybe that stuff is fake and maybe what's real is or maybe it's okay like maybe the 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 body shape that I have or the size that I have is normal and okay you know.
0: Yeah, and I think you know what you're bringing up is so relevant and important, and such a powerful statement because it's it's like you know we all know the saying "comparison is the thief of joy," but Mm -hmm. you know we as men are extraordinarily performance based, and we get rewarded from our from society, from culture, from you know women, from our family, from our friends for being very performance based, and porn really accentuates that, right? The whole premise is like compete perform and out fuck. And yes,
1: and it's also um um symbolic symbolically society has made the male penis um um a symbol of power. Yeah. Like like you know, so like for men in locker rooms, like so the bigger it is, it means the more the more manly you are.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and I you know I think the interesting thing is for a lot of guys the the challenge is that they can really put a lot of their self-worth and self-confidence, sexually, especially, in that like one piece of information that they can't do anything about, right? So if they're born with an average size penis and they've been watching porn where guys have like nine or ten or eleven-inch dongs, <laughs> they, you know, they're they're like they're conditioned to feel ashamed of yeah. what they're packing, right? Yes. They're like literally they con- they are, and the, the sad part is is that they're conditioning themselves. You know, right, right. it's like they're conditioning themselves while watching that to like feel shame of like what they have. So how, yeah. you know, at
1: and and first, let's just say, if you Google what the average is, it's not 10 inches. It's like, <laughs> it's like six or five and a half or something. It's, I mean, you know, it's not, it's what we all have, you know, it's, and, and, and it's not, uh, uh, I mean, the, the 10 inch penises that's, it's rare, but it's also, um, it's kind of a, uh, I don't know. I it, it's. I don't, I don't think I, I, uh, today as a 46 year old, I don't think I want, want that. I wouldn't want that if that was my choice.
0: Yeah. And I, it's, I think for a lot of guys, I think that most men go through this, uh, it's sort of, I think for a lot of guys, it represents like this sort of peak or, or pinnacle of like masculinity, right? It's like the, yeah. the yeah. phallic representation of hyper masculinity, and I right. think that's part it, it's of the appeal, reason
1: why we raise trucks, and you know, <laughs> um, want the corner office, and all. I mean, yeah, you're, it's a, it's an extension, um, it's it's a, it's attaching to um, something that's outside of self, right?
0: Um, yeah. It's the, it's the like, you know, 10,000 square foot house with, you know, 15 bedrooms when it's you, your wife and one child, you know, like, what are you doing with the rest of those bedrooms, bro? Like, (laughs) (laughs) what are you possibly doing? It's like, why do you have 10 Lamborghinis? Like you actually, please explain. Like, even if you take out the, like the whole, like there's people starving in other countries. Like, even if you take out all that crap, it's like, why do you need? a garage full of hundreds of cars and motorcycles like what is it about the obsession of more and and never never letting what you have be enough
1: yeah and there's a difference i mean it's intention so there's a difference between um you know people like Jay Leno and Jerry Seinfeld who do have airport hangars full of cars yeah, um, but 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 at the same time, and I do think it's too much. But at the same time, they're obsessed with cars; they're car enthusiasts. So, like, yeah, it's a passion. It's a it's a, it's a passion. So yeah. that's a little different than someone having, you know, eight Lamborghinis. They don't even like cars, and they drive those Lamborghinis twenty miles an hour. But they the intention is so they could look better, or they could, you know, um, appear uh, more quote unquote successful, manly, whatever. You fill in the blank.
0: Yeah, and do you feel like? It, it, I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like thinking in my head how personally I really want to get about this, this, this podcast here. But, um, cause I think that this is such a huge, a huge conversation for, yeah. um, no pun intended, but for all, all men that are out there when it comes to sex and intimacy, because there's an immense amount of pressure that, that this sort of comparison plays on their ability. And I, I hear a lot of men that, you know, would have been in your situation where they wouldn't have been able to hear what their partner had to say, regardless of their own penis size, right? Like they wouldn't have been able to hear, oh, from their from their girlfriend, like, oh, my past partner had this, you know, big penis and I didn't enjoy it. And they would have taken it personally. Why is it that in those situations, like, a lot of men struggle to hear about a woman's past. I know we're using a very like heterosexual, uh, norm and narrative, but we're going to stick with that for right now. What is it about, about comparison. that? That it's we
1: comparison. It's, yeah. um, yeah. One of the, one of the don'ts I do, um, in, or the don'ts I talk about in my book is to, um, not want to hear about your partner's sexual history and because a lot of men do and they they can't handle it like they 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 do in a playful curious way and then they realize um the more they hear the more insecure they get because they feel that um they're they're lacking in some way so it's i mean not just penis size but maybe it's uh you know because she i don't know had an amazing sexual experience with someone else, or maybe maybe she had a threesome, or maybe she had whatever. And it, and 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 most men, they are not secure enough with themselves to accept and handle that. Instead, then they you know they dig further and they, they actually get more and more insecure, and then that ripples into the relationship. And the truth is, you know what someone did before they met you is none of your business, really. You know it shouldn't impact um, the way that you guys love each other today.
0: Well, I think the, the interesting thing is, is that that insecurity, how much of that do you feel, because I've sort of seen this pattern before, but how much do you feel that it is a representation of their own lack of sexual exploration or sexual expression? Oh, yeah, 100%. I think it is.
1: You know, it's the, it's the whole scoreboard thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's the whole um, um, competing with other men. That, that, that men have, uh, it's power, it's domination, it's um, all of that, you know? And I think it stems, again, from having a warped definition of, of um, sex and intimacy. You know, I mean, I, I love where where we're going with this because it's it's such an important topic. I think uh, the soil is so rich right now uh, for men to redefine themselves. And if you want to talk about, um, this is only you know one part of our lives. But when you talk want to talk about sex, intimacy, including you know um, 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 body shapes, penis size, all of that, it's 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 really time to like shake that etch-a-sketch, you know, and know that a lot of it, uh, it has been programmed, you know, so whether it's pornography or media or advertising or whatever, uh, and to kind of start over, there's there's so much more to connection and intimacy than um, phys- the physical act of sex.
0: Why do you think that there is, because I see this happen quite a bit where the, the porn conversation will happen online. Like we have a man talks community where there's like, you know, four and a half thousand guys in there. And the porn conversation will come up. And it seems to be that there's a large subset, maybe not large, but there's a subset of men that seem hell-bent on protecting porn as if it is some you know, miracle or God, God's gift to men. And I'm curious from your perspective, Why do men want to protect pornography? What is it about pornography that we are drawn to, that we we want to have in our lives? And so when when it's sort of looked at through a negative lens, there's a lot of protection around it.
1: Um, I think it's the same reason why men want their sons to play with trucks and wear blue you know um i think it's i think pornography represents because pornography is made uh, uh usually for men right uh there's a lot of control there's a lot of women being submissive um there's a blueprint there and if you and if that if you take that away from a lot of men then it it, it um the the their definition of men uh can be shattered right they're holding mm-hmm. on to it because it means something um and in and in in that's i think that's why it's important to and i don't know about taking it away i think it's about redefining you mm-hmm. know um because re- i don't it's i don't i don't think it's possible to take it away but no. <laughs> it's about, um redefining going on a journey where you're redefining what sex intimacy um connection um all of that looks like and i don't think there's anything wrong with being sexual and there's different types of, of sex. i mean i don't there's 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 nothing wrong with um If something turns you on, and if it's porn, you know, if you if you things that you watch turn you on, there's nothing wrong with expressing that and and trying different things. But if you measure yourself by those things, right? If you internalize it, if you define yourself by um, some of the images that you that you see, uh, then I think you're you're disconnecting with with self, right? Then I think it can be toxic.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great distinction. Like I know for myself, I was hyper hyper sexual mm-hmm. as a teenager, as a young adult. And and even still today, there's, you know, I, I sort of have that very strong sexual yeah, appetite. Me too. And I think the difference has come for me in in this sort of so a slight separation between yes, I'm a high, I have a lot of sexual energy, but that doesn't mean that my worth comes from my ability to be this hypersexual being. And I feel like right. the challenge for me with with porn was that it fed that part. You know, sort of like valid. It was like the validating part that said like, yeah, you can you know go and watch porn for a few hours and get validation. And I think for men, porn for a lot of guys, not all guys, right? I think that some men have a very healthy connection to their sexuality. There's things that they want to explore. Sometimes they do it in person. Sometimes they do it by watching porn. But I do think that for a lot of men, how they get that sexual validation or, or, you know, sort of uh, using porn almost as like a a crutch or an escape, mm-hmm. and I see a lot of guys using porn to escape, having to feel stressed or overwhelmed or massive yeah. amounts of anxiety or yeah. depression that they've been carrying around for years. And porn is the thing that comforts them rather than them building the the real, genuine relationships that they need to learn how to to be self sufficient enough to move out of that space. So, yeah, what are it, your, what are your it thoughts pro- on
1: that? It, you're absolutely right. It produces dopamine. It gives you that high.
0: Um, there's a comfort
1: there. There's, you know, it's the same thing with, um, 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 gambling or alcohol, or it could be, you know, um, it's, it's, it's an addiction, you know, um, women, women get a high when they purge. Well, women with eating disorders, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, it's a form of coping or, or it can be, you know, it depends on, and, and you have to define what is healthy and unhealthy, Right. Um, I don't think just because you uh, look at a pornographic image or you or you watch something with your uh, girlfriend that that's unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, But but if you start to define yourself by it, if you. If it, if you use that as a vice, with you know, as you would to numb yourself with food or anything else, then of course um, it can be unhealthy. Or if you are, or if it's affecting your life, you know, uh, financially, or if you're now, um, you know, it, it turns from porn into you know, escorts and stuff. Like if it takes control of your life, right? Then of course that's unhealthy. So you have to decide, you know, how you use it and and what's healthy for you and what's not healthy for you. I don't think there's a blanket statement, you know, with What's, what's, and it's the same thing with anything gambling, alcohol, drug, you know, all that stuff.
0: So let's, let's talk a little bit about how men can start to explore their sexuality outside of porn. What, what does that look like? Because I think for most men, yeah. that sort of becomes a conundrum. Yeah. It's like, well, if I am not in a relationship or I'm not out there having sex, then my only sort of option is to go to porn and explore the, you know, the realms of that, which can be a very interesting journey and lead you down some, some interesting paths.
1: Um, I like the word connection. So, um, and, and whether that means connection with someone else, uh, intimately or connection with yourself. And I think that, uh, um, exploring that connection, you know, what makes you feel sexy, uh, also, um, using mindfulness. So, um, when you're with someone instead of, you know, the same routines that you have been used to, or that you have seen, um, switching it up slowing it down um, using different parts of your body like all of that stuff you know really uh, 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 being mindful and present uh, because it's so easy to get into routines and suddenly um, their lovemaking becomes mechanical and then it becomes like porn you know
0: yeah I think one of the one of the things that I said to a client the other day uh, when we were talking about this exactly I said let it be let it be awkward and yeah. yeah. lot I find that like a lot of men that, that especially men that have um, maybe some performance anxiety in the bedroom or they they, they sort of like need to uh, recall porn or other sexual experiences that they've had in order to be aroused with their partner. And, and they'll feel this sort of like anxiety of trying those new things and the spontaneity. It's like, let it be awkward. You know, let it be a little bit awkward, get a laugh out of it and let that build the connection, right? Yeah. Men and women love humor. There's no reason why every once in a while we can't have a good laugh at ourselves or our partner in the bedroom. And that that can be an incredible piece of building the intimacy and the connection. And I think the other thing that you said that was really powerful was start to explore, you know, start to explore yourself. How do you, how do you want to be touched? How do you want to be with your partner and then be able to guide your partner through that? I find that a lot of men struggle to uh, sort of direct their partner in the bedroom, I was gonna say ask, but I think it's actually about directing to be able to say, hey, here's, here's how I would love for you to touch me, here's how I want you to yeah, go down on me. Yeah, right. and, and I think couples that, that do sex really well, sort of like they explore that, right? Have you seen that where like couples will sort of explore almost like teaching and training each other exactly how they want to be explored and experienced?
1: Um, I think that comes with, uh, again, uh, self-awareness, self-esteem, age, all of that. But yes, I I think all those, what you just said, those are uh, ingredients to change um, intimacy uh, and and make it more healthy. I also think if you take power out of the equation, because what porn injects into men is that whole power thing. And if you're in a heterosexual relationship to empower the woman, because um, women have been programmed in our society and, and even if they 're watching porn to be the submissive to uh, just shut up and like it to not express what they want, you know what i 'm saying, so um, if you take power out of the equation, it changes the dynamic, and I think that 's healthy you know so uh, encourage a space where women kids say, "Hey, can you do this or maybe maybe this time let 's not worry about finishing you let 's worry about finishing me. Uh, can we bring in toys? This is how I want you know can we slow this down or because um, mostly women, uh, I think starting from high school, even earlier are just programmed to please the man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Sexually I think in the bedroom. There is a lot of that conditioning. And I think yeah. it, you know, it, a lot of guys I've worked with a lot of men before where they're in a relationship, they've been in that relationship for a long time. And <clears throat> you know, they're complaining about not having enough sex. It's like, Oh, we only have sex once a month. And when you dig a little bit deeper, immediately, what I usually find is that their partners, the woman's sexual experience has actually never been explored or prioritized. And it's like, well, of, of course, she doesn't necessarily want to have as much sex. Her needs, her desires have never actually come forward. And so sex is just about you and mm-hmm. just about getting you off. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of women, there's, you know, unconscious resentment towards their partner. There's there's. There's a a lack of why, right? There's no connection to the why. It's like why would I why would I do that? It sort of like it, we as human beings are very selfish, I find, right? So it's like what's in it for me? <laughs> right. yeah. It's like what do I get out of this experience? And I think the more that we can explore our partner's sexual desires and allow those things to to sort of come out, it also I've found for a lot of men it empowers them sexually because they they are pushing themselves past an edge to be able to explore their partner's sexuality and what they want and desire and are craving yeah. and and it and it does allow for power dynamics to shift a little bit and and kind of go back and forth and you kind of a, a play an experiment so what what's been your experience with that
1: I'm still uh, – I mean, we have a lot in common. I'm you know, i also uh, uh, very sexualized. I'm a sexual person. I've always been, and I think part of that is from um, being exposed to things earlier on. Also, my dad's an alcoholic, so I think I have the addictive gene. Um, and I used to be shame – I used to have shame about that, but now I'm actually embracing and empowering it uh, – empowering myself and letting myself um, be okay with being a sexual person, um, at the same time redefining what sex looks like. Uh, so – I, I I I think I'm swaying from your question. I don't remember, but but I think <laughs> I think um, um, part of you know redefining men, and this is this is a, a huge topic, is also redefining uh, sexuality, what it looks like uh, to be intimate, and you know uh, some some days, yeah, it could be rough and kinky and whatever, and then some days it could be completely uh, the opposite. And I think switching it up and then um, being aware of what that. Feels like for you and what is honest to you and then communicating that I think that's that's important I think that can change so many relationships you know
0: yeah I mean I found that a lot of guys you know we we love routine we love habit yeah and and we you know I think the the perspective that I that I always give to guys is like you know how you like winning well, usually, in the bedroom, we find like one path to winning, and then guys just go down that path over and over yes. and over again yes yep. and and for you know for the the spontaneity of of intimacy, that can get tired really, really quickly, and so being able to explore some of these other pathways, which requires us to expand our edge a little bit, which is what we really uh, what I found a lot of men really crave, right? Like when we're expanding our edge, we feel like we are being challenged. We feel like we have a sense of purpose. And so bringing that mentality that we would normally use you know, within our business and our career can be incredibly empowering in the bedroom as well. And yes. I'm, I'm curious as if you can give some other context to where you think that men and, and can, can sort of start to and, and carry on their exploration of their own sexuality.
1: Yeah. So with me, it's all about mindset. I'm a big fan of um, um, changing our mindset and allowing that to ripple outward. And for me, I know it sounds really simple, but uh, this idea of with you instead of at you. So this is what I, uh, this is how, that's my take. It's how I approach clients as a therapist and and a coach, but also I think it's a great mindset in the bedroom. So I think because of uh, pornography and, and other things that we have been programmed to come at women instead of with them and so if you think about what that looks like in a bedroom at would be control power domination um you know taking um like you said being selfish all of that so that's coming at someone and then with is joining with is communication with is creating a space where you allow um you know the the both lanes and 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 uh and throwing away old definitions with means exploration and being curious uh with means using all your senses so just that tweak in going into the bedroom with a with mindset instead of at um i think that can change everything
0: awesome man i love that i love that well uh i think we're going to have to wrap up here for today as uh, cuz we're cutting it close on time here. And we're a little bit over, but uh, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. And I appreciate you being on the show today and diving into this conversation. Is there anything else that you would love to leave the the listeners with?
1: Um, No, watch. I want to thank you for um, having me. And I love where the conversation went um, because it it scared me and anything that scares me, I want to try to lean into. And so I love that we went there and I think it's an important dialogue and we should continue it. Like when I say we, everyone.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, for the listeners that are out there, if you want to continue the conversation, definitely uh, check out the Man Talks community on Facebook. Uh, head on over and and check out John's book. I used to be a miserable fuck and Every Man's Guide to a Meaningful Life. It's really, really impactful. Uh, some great points, and and I'm sure you can tell after this interview uh, that he is well thought, well written, uh, and the book is the book is a, a good mix of like serious, but also some good humor in there that I really appreciated. So
1: yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you for promoting my book. And you could, if you just go to my website, you could find the book, uh, journey coaching, my uh, life coaching academy
0: intensive and, uh, texting and all the, all the stuff that I'm doing. Awesome. Perfect. Uh, for everyone else that's out there listening, don't forget to man it forward, share it with just one person that you think would love to listen to this conversation or, or could use digging into these topics. Uh, And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual.